Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to one of the two authors of a book just out in 2023 from Bloomsbury titled Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy, written by Claire Provo, who we have with us today, and Matt Kennard. Uh, They are two investigative journalists that went all over the world to examine the rise of a corporate empire, an institutional system that really has quite a lot of power in determining how resources are allocated, um, what control countries have over their own stuff, um, and really helps us understand a lot of how today's world actually works. So Claire, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the findings of the book, um, would you mind introducing yourself and your co-author, Matt, a little bit, who's not with us today, um, and explain kind of why you two decided to write this book? Absolutely. Uh, So both myself and Matt, we are investigative journalists, and we met uh, back in 2014, so almost a decade ago now, when we started as fellows at the Center for Investigative Journalism in London under its founding and really inspirational director, Gavin McFadden. Um, And Gavin had a a really impressive journalistic track record, but he was also, we learned, uh, something of a matchmaker. And it, it didn't seem like a coincidence that Matt and I were interested in similar things. Gavin really encouraged us to work together. We didn't really need that much encouragement. And then we got an unexpected phone call that led us to start investigating together uh, the obscure but powerful international investor state dispute settlement system. And then as as these things happen, one thing led to another and then 25 countries and many years of work and a long-term collaboration and then this book. (laughs) One thing very much led to another to um, end up with all of this. Um, So obviously, it's a focus of the book, and you've already mentioned it. So can you tell us a bit about the World Bank Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, um, which sounds deeply dry, but is very important after reading the book? Um, What is this and what does it do? Absolutely. So uh, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, or its acronym ICSID, uh, and I apologize, apologize, there are a number of acronyms here. Um, it is a relatively little known branch of the World Bank, um, yet it sits at the center of this investor state dispute settlement system, also known as ISDS, another acronym. Um, and it handles the so far the largest number of these disputes um, that are mounted by multinational corporations and foreign investors against states, against entire countries, entire populations, um, putting them on the hook to potentially have to pay huge or even multi-million, multi-million, multi-billion dollar awards or change policies in favor of of corporate investors. Um, And and this system... uh, uh, could have, has enabled corporations and investors to file um, claims challenging a wide, really wide range of state actions. Um, and issues like human rights and the environment just aren't the concern or the expertise of the tribunals that are assembled to hear these cases. Uh, they usually have three arbitrators on on them who often have corporate or business-friendly backgrounds. Um, and everything from environmental regulations to tax bills that companies don't want to pay have been the subject of these cases. 
Uh, it's a very advantageous system for foreign investors. It allows them to bypass national courts and scrutiny and challenge states directly and internationally. States on the other side can can really only lose or settle, change policies, suit corporate and interests, or walk away with the status quo. If they win, they they the, the best the best case scenario is that they they win their defense. They still likely have to pay many millions um, to have uh, to have mounted that defense, and they walk away with the status quo. There's no real way to win; only lose or or maintain the status quo. Hmm. Okay, so high stakes um, and the acronyms in some sense uh, create some invisibility of what this actually is doing and also where this is coming from, right? Um, the, the the acronyms, the names don't really say kind of here's where this all, here's how the system where you can't really win, uh, here's where this is from. But thankfully, you both in- uncover that in the book. So can you tell us kind of where this came from and to what extent it's from colonial organizations? Yeah, so the, the, the World Bank's ICSID Center was set up in 1966, um, uh, but um, there were proposals and discussions about setting up this investor state dispute settlement system much earlier than that. So throughout the 50s and, and, and then the early 60s until its establishment, um, and as countries like Ghana and, and others uh, began to gain independence from colonial rulers and elites, felt then and talked about it, about how the ground was really shifting beneath their feet and new ways to maintain and expand power would be needed. Um, So in in the late 50s, uh, for example, years before um, the World Bank sets up its ICSID system, the, the Deutsche Bank's uh, Herman Abs goes to San Francisco, and we have a really, really detailed record of, of this, this event because Time Magazine co-sponsored it. Um, it was an international in, in, uh, investment conference, um, and the Deutsche Bank's uh, Herman Abs um, gives a, a very, very uh, popular talk at this conference, widely applauded, describe, uh, proposing what's described by Time as, as a new corporate Magna Carta. You know, so we're talking extremely ambitious proposals about building a new justice system at an international level that would wrench power from states and from rebellious people um, uh, that were rising up in this period of decolonization and, and thinking about different ways to structure economies, things they might want to nationalize, different ways to deal with how to build a, a more just society out of an extraordinarily un, uh, unjust situation. Um, uh, so pitching this extremely ambitious uh, corporate Magna Carta first to business elites and as well as some political elites in San Francisco, um, and then and then his proposal and a proposal from from um, a British lord, Lord Shawcross, were then merged. It took time for this to be then taken up by the World Bank and established. Um, but the roots of the system and the debates, the early debates about and, and proposals for it really do come from this moment when many people thought um, and some people feared that things could be different. And for elites with a lot of power and a lot at stake, um, uh, they set about to to insulate themselves basically from the changes that could come. Uh, other systems and strategies of, of, of corporate of furthering corporate power that we looked at um, and that are in the book 
uh, also emerge uh, at a very similar time. Thank you for explaining that. I think this idea of change is coming, it's important to remember that some of the people were very scared of it. It wasn't all happy and liberatory. Um, but of course, that seems kind of at odds with what we think happened, right? A lot of countries did become independent, did have sovereign control. Um, many became democracies. And yet the system that came from these fears and impulses, nevertheless, was able to be created. Um, so kind of how do we put all these things together? How do we think about this system coming out of colonial institutions, out of fears of decolonization? How does that interact with norms and maybe realities of sovereignty? Um, well, uh, the our introduction to the system largely came through uh, that unexpected phone call I mentioned that then sent us to El Salvador to look at a particular case and its impacts on the country. And that case was um, filed by a Canadian uh, company that then was bought by an Australian Canadian company. Um, and it was uh, challenging the state's refusal to give it a, a license to dig up gold um, in the context of a really phenomenal, um, pioneering, uh, world-leading environmental movement that had uh, gained significant widespread power, grassroots support, but also religious institutions and political leaders, thinking about how in the midst of El Salvador's extreme water crisis, um, clean water crisis, how to how to do things differently and how to protect the environment. And so there was there was a widespread calls for a, a ban on mining. Um, and in this context, um, this, this multinational company, because it has access to the system, sues the country for a vast amount of money, really threatening it with a, a very poor country with a very large bill if it went to basically if it went ahead and, and thought about not giving licenses for mining um, uh, or or demanding a license to dig. So use, using this system and using the ability to file a case while being very clear that its objective was to dig. So so not, not that its objective was to necessarily get them the financial award in that case, but to change policy and change um, what uh, the terms of what's possible in the country. And, and that case was denounced by uh, local civil society, international civil society, as well as by Salvadoran politicians and Salvador, the, Sal the Salvadoran legal team as a, a major threat to the country's sovereignty by limiting its ability to make decisions about how to protect the environment or threatening its ability to do that. Um, and uh, there, we, we saw similar things in, in other countries, like in South Africa and Germany, about how uh, cases through the system were, um, you know, challenging, sometimes overruling um democratically supported, democratically driven uh, uh, decisions and movements around um, the protection of the environment, the creation of more just and equal societies, dealing with um, legacies of historical injustices, for example, in South Africa. Uh, and and the, the really shocking thing, I think, for us was the, um, not just the 
the the the the the enormous power of this of of the system and the enormous power that companies can wield through the system, but also how um, concerns from civil society as well as politicians, MPs in 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 the in the countries that were being sued, um, really mirrored uh, some of the concerns from developing countries right at the beginning of of the story and and before the World Bank's exit centers was set up. There were um, meetings and consultations about it, um, uh, quote-unquote consultations at the World Bank. And there were there was a block of developing countries that were very, very vocal in their opposition to the idea from the beginning, warning that it would threaten their sovereignty, warning that it would undermine their ability to make changes moving forward, that it would freeze them into the status quo, that it would prioritize multinationals over local businesses, all of the things that we were seeing um, play out on the ground were were actually forewarned. And that was really chilling. Mm, very much so. Um, and kind of begs the question of how do countries kind of end up in the system? Because as uh, detailed in the book, this only works if countries sign treaties to be part of the system. And given these infringements on sovereignty, it sort of seems like, well, why would anyone possibly sign such a treaty? Um, But countries obviously do. And there's arguments made about why they should. Why do countries sign these treaties? Do they benefit from them? Well, the the argument, the often made argument to sign uh, an international investment treaty that gives investors advanced consent to sue your country through the system. The argument for doing that is that um, if if investors feel like they have this access to this, this international justice system, they'll feel more confident investing in your country um, and, uh, and, and then therefore you'll get more investment and then therefore you'll get more development. That's the argument for the system that's been repeated for generations now, and um, the uh, the the, it's been repeated for, it's an argument that's been repeated for generations, but both at the beginning and now, there's no solid evidence to back up those claims. There's no solid evidence that uh, having having these treaties with these provisions increases investment. There's also no solid evidence that just increasing investment on its own, any kind of investment is going to lead to broad-based, shared, equitable, sustainable development. Um, so, uh, and, and, and the, the South Africa, um, one of the countries that we did look at, is, is, is one of the countries that is, tr- has been trying um, to extricate itself from the system. You can, um, treaties can be canceled. Um, I, even if they're canceled, sometimes these provisions can remain in force for many years through what are called sunset clauses. But you, but you still can cancel and try to get yourself out of the system. And and so South Africa is a country that um, did start canceling some of its treaties several years ago after it did a study. The government did an internal study of. Um, what's the evidence like what are the that they were aware after having been sued over black economic empowerment policies of the potential threats of the system but they did this internal study to compare that with like the potential benefits and found no evidence that um that there were such benefits uh that the 
would mean that they should stay in it regardless of the risks. So then they took the decision based on that uh, to start extricating them, uh, the country from the system. Some other countries have been trying to cancel uh, treaties or trying to ensure that new treaties are written differently so that they limit corporate access to the system. Um, so there's now quite a significant amount of evidence that um, that the claims and uh, that proponents make are not convincing. Hmm. And yet this idea that there's been an argument going for generations without a lot of evidence um, is interesting in a sense because the the suing, the legal cases seem to have started a lot more recently. Um, Obviously, South Africa's case, we're talking about black empowerment. There's kind of an implication that that's happening after the end of apartheid um, in when it ended in the 90s. And in fact, that's not an accident. You show that in the book, uh, a lot more of these cases seem to be starting from the 90s onwards, even though the system was already a few decades old by that point. Why was there this sudden uptick in the mid-1990s of actually using this system to sue countries? It's a great question. And there's a bunch of different um, potential answers to it, I think. And I think it's a number of things happening at the same time. One of them is is the proliferation of these international investment and free trade treaties that enshrine access to the system. Um, and in the from the 90s, you get you get new mega treaties like NAFTA, bringing in Canada, the US, and, and Mexico, and also the Energy Charter Treaty, uh, bringing in a huge number of countries, including former Soviet countries. Um, and these, these, the dawn of these like mega treaties um, uh, happens around that time. And then another thing that has happened is. And that was that was described, explained to us by lawyers that work uh, work on these cases, both for uh, companies and for states, is that the the institutional knowledge within the legal ecosystem has increased around the system. There are more lawyers now that um, that are aware of it, that will work on it, that specialize in it. Um, there are conference circuits and magazines for them. There's a whole sort of industry that's de- legal and in- legal industry that's developed around these cases. Um, and then there's also a financial industry that's developed around these cases where there are a particularly since the financial crisis, that's even a bit after the 90s, you know, a bit, quite a while after the 90s, but um, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, uh, there's, there was an increase also in um, boutique financial firms um, investing in, uh, in corporate cases through the system, seeing them as an asset class. So basically paying the, um, the costs of mounting it in exchange for a cut of the award, making it even easier for companies to file cases. So the whole, the industry around the system is, it, it has, you know, certainly expanded significantly and in many ways appears to have driven like uh, the rise in cases. The fact that you, if you're a, a corporation and you have a dispute with the state, you have access to finance. You can file a case without it costing you any money. Um, you can also, you, you're also, you also have law firms that are um, able to mount, like, have the expertise in mounting these cases, but that are also like regularly bombarding your legal team and your um, uh, 
your executives with information about how you could use the system to your benefit. So law firms that work in the system for corporations do quite a lot of work advertising how um, how it's beneficial because it's like less transparent than national courts, because certain issues are not going to be discussed, because you can get access to this finance because, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, so mount, mounting these cases has also become my business in itself for, for lawyers and, and also for third party financiers, which is part of the story. Mm. Thank you for explaining kind of how all the pieces come together. I think it makes a lot more sense than saying, ah, well, it's all from this one reason, right? That's almost never the case. And so tracing it all out, as you've just done a bit there, and of course, the book goes into lots of detail, um, is helpful for understanding kind of the different pieces of the system. And one of which I'd love to bring in that the book uh, details quite a few examples of is uh, an example. I think the phrase in the book is something like uh, all of the world is watching a city in southern China, right? Um, The idea of special economic zones or SEZs that started in Shenzhen. That I have to admit, when you first started talking in the book about this uh, legal dispute system, I was not thinking of, of special economic zones as being part of that, but they very much are. How do they fit into this system? Well, um, special economic zones are another um, kind of mega strategy um, that we we looked at uh, that that has a similar um, uh, history in a way, and that it expands in the um, in the mid twentieth century in that same period of decolonization and and a moment of things could be different um, and and then again expands, uh, proliferates significantly again um, in the 90s, the uh, end of the Cold War, and then again at the end of the financial crisis. Um, uh, and, and it's similar to the international investor state dispute settlement system, the proliferation of these special economic zones have ena- has enabled corporations to and private investors to effectively insulate themselves from democracies. Um, they they are spaces of exception where normal rules usually don't apply, where taxes might be lower, labor laws might not exist, regulations might be different, the level of infrastructure, whatever you have access to, is is completely off the charts compared to what else is available in the country. Um, we describe them in the book as as a as a type of corporate utopia, where um, uh, uh, where everything is oriented around your interests. So similar to the legal system, where issues like human rights and the environment are really not on the table, and they're not what, what tribunals are expert in, um, in, in special economics. And similarly, like the rules that exist in a country, like are different and they're modified to shape your interests. Um, uh, and, and there are cases where <clears throat> both, uh, sorry, the world bank has also been very involved in promoting special economic zones around the world. And there is a fascinating current investor state dispute case um, that brings both that legal system and these special economic zones um, together. And it's, it's in it's Honduras that um, uh, 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 changed a, a law around special economic zones um, uh, and, and an investor in one of these special economic zones is suing the country through this, this system and, um, 
for changing their policy. Um, both, uh, um, both, but both of these, uh, both both the ISDS system and and SEZs, what 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 they have, I think, particularly in in common is the um, the ambition to completely rewrite the rules of the game um, in service of corporate interests and, and as well as the history um, that, that overlaps in the role of some similar institutions. Thank you for explaining how that puzzle piece fits into this whole system. We've mainly been talking about um, the lawyers, the countries and uh, the companies. I want to bring in another actor because in a lot of senses, you'd expect, given how pervasive this is um, across time and across space, we we would maybe know more about it. And yet the title of your book, Silent Coup, uh, indicates pretty strongly that we don't. Why don't we see, for example, NGOs making more of a fuss about this, holding companies to account for using the system? Um, uh, the One of the things that we sort of parallel trends um, that we trace in the book is the increasing proliferation of corporate and NGO tie-ups and partnerships um, where increasingly the NGOs that you might expect to otherwise hold companies to account or challenge corporate power are also their partners in development, um, co-implementing projects, co-branding projects. Um, and there's many reasons for those tie-ups, including budget pressures, cuts from government aid, um, but also a business-friendly ideology and, and a way of thinking about success being like fundraising-based. And if you're an NGO that's thinking like primarily about measuring your success in that way or or significantly measuring your success in terms of how big you are and how much you're growing, how many high profile partners you have. Um, and with that, without sufficient due diligence and um, a prioritization of your mission, um, we've seen a, a vast number of these kind of um, partnerships. So I think that's one reason. Another reason is um, that, uh, like the truth is that around the world, we, we met um, uh, civil society activists and social movements who were uh, resisting or challenging um, these systems and corporate systems and corporate strategies, and um, I knew a lot. They knew a lot about them. So in El Salvador, for example, um, we would meet people and and. A wide variety doesn't didn't matter if it was uh, someone at the guest house we were staying at or a taxi driver, um, wh- whoever, um, and and they would ask what we were what we were doing there, and we we, we at first tentatively said, uh, oh, we're here because there's a big case against El Salvador at at the World Bank, and and we want to learn more about it, and then the response was like, oh, so Ciadi, then you're talking about that, which is the Spanish nick- acronym for ICSID. And everybody seemed to know about it. Um, and so then, like, the next person asks us what we're there for. And we say, oh, we're there for the Siadi case to, to look into that. And they're like, oh, okay, everyone knew about it. Um, so it, and, and in that case, there were 
you know, very powerful social movements that were really raising it to a national level um, issue and also politicians that were publicly talking about the case and 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 very forcefully talking about it uh, and, and about how it was threatening um, alternative action in the country. In many cases, though, in many other countries and many other cases, governments don't talk about the, the threats that they're under. Um, and there might be different reasons for that. They might be worried about publicizing it because they might be worried about other companies um, trying to sort of copy it and file claims as well. Um, sometimes they might not want to publicize it because they're in backroom negotiations with the with the company trying to come up with some sort of compromise. That might not be good for democracy, those backroom negotiations, but that might be what's what's happening sometimes. Um, there are... There are there are hundreds of these cases that are going on right now. Um, and there are thousands of special economic zones around the world. Um, there are vast number of corp- these corporate NGO tie-ups and other ways in which corporations are benefiting from and furthering their power through the international aid system. Um, but, but these, the, the, and, and there are, there are people who know about this, but often their their voices don't, and their perspectives and their knowledge don't make it their way to the mainstream awareness. Um, and it, in El Salvador, is an exception, and that was where you had very powerful social movements raising the issue, but it, you also had a government that was publicly talking about it, um, and and publicly uh, being very clear about its position and how it was trying to defend itself in court. Um, that doesn't always happen. And so most of the, most of the time um, these things happen without taxpayers and voters and citizens really knowing about them. Uh, And, and as, as a journalist, it's also, you know, as from the perspective of a journalist, there's also a a failure of the media here and, and explaining to people explaining to us where where power lies, but also how decisions are made, what decisions are being challenged, and how um, the, the hundreds of cases that are currently ongoing, uh, they're not being covered uh, with the anywhere near the frequency that Supreme Courts are covered at a national level. Um, but the international investor state dispute settlement system effectively acts like a Supreme Court for the world. Um, and, and, and there aren't that many correspondents that cover it that are not for very specialist or industry trade journals. Um, so there's a, there's a, there, there's a, uh, there are issues that like my industry, the media needs to reckon with too here about, uh, how to get better at, at covering, uh, transnational issues like this. And of course, one of the biggest transnational issues um, to try and cover all the pieces of is uh, looming future problems like climate change, right? Uh, This system is not just about kind of individual companies wanting to do things or um, kind of a few of the examples we've talked about before. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit more about how this system gets in the way of countries that are trying to do things, make changes to adapt to climate change. Yeah. So the, I like I think it's quite well accepted now that in order to uh, in order to adapt to and respond to climate change, slow it down, etc., we have to do things differently. We have to make changes on like big levels on on structural, systemic, societal, 
whole economy-wide levels. And um, the investor state dispute settlement system basically locks countries into uh, uh, their position at the time when investments happen, makes it really hard to change your mind, um, to do things better. Uh, so South Africa, for example, that's not an environmental case, but it's a really clear case of not being able to change your mind or being challenged for changing your mind after apartheid introduces black economic empowerment laws. A group of Italian investors don't like them. They sue. As a result of that suit, they get an exemption to those black economic empowerment laws. Um, the, the, the case that we looked at in Germany um, was an environmental case. Uh, that was uh, um, Hamburg uh, um, uh, as the result of widespread requests from citizens to do this. Hamburg tr- tries to put on um, a, a clear, rest- clear, clear rules for a new uh, coal-fired power plant in the city to ensure that it does not exceed EU like limits on how much it's able to uh, affect the local water resources, etc. And and so. So it's not it, it it doesn't block the power plant, but it, it does what it can to um, impose all the EU rules, which you think should happen. But these EU rules, you, you, you know, also may be new and maybe the result of environment, more environmental awareness. The company doesn't like it. The company sues the company as a result, gets an basically an exemption to those rules, basically similar to to in South Africa gets gets a new water license um, to to be able to uh, raise the temperature higher, um, regardless of concerns on local fish um, populations in the river, etc. So we've seen there are a lot of cases like that. This is a common theme within these cases about uh, challenging, challenging companies using the system to challenge states ability to change their mind. And if we can't change our minds, like as countries on a systemic level, it's going to be really hard to, to tackle uh, climate change, but also other, you know, major, major imperatives for social and other justice issues. Especially because when you talk about changing minds, right, it's not about, oh, last year we did this and now we're changing it. It's like, no, we decided this in the 70s and we now have a bunch more information, but we signed a contract in 1970 and now we'd like to change it. Um, Some of the examples that you talk about in the book are really quite that long and the idea of being stuck into them um, really does have quite an impact. Thinking of this idea, though, of kind of what can we do about it or what more can we be aware of, obviously, besides just the understanding from the book, um, this idea of the media needing to do more about it. You've spoken about kind of the constraints on NGOs, and a lot of them, of course, also apply to the media. Um, it, what can be done? How, how can this be less underreported? It's it's a good and challenging question. Um, I and I think the, there's like many answers here. Um, and one of, you know, one of them is, is about 
you know, recognizing that some of the key threats to democracy right now at this moment transcend national borders. So the the threats from this investor state dispute settlement system, they transcend national borders. Um, the proliferation of special economic zones, the use of aid and development institutions to reshape countries and corporate interests. These are all transnational stories um, that are uh, that the, in general, like the media is not good at covering transnational stories, not good at covering structural issues rather than one-off scandals. Um, so there's, you know, the, we're living in an uh, like in a in an era of transnational power that requires like a lot of thought and thinking about how how to how to cover that better and how to how to better serve audiences so they better understand um what what's shaping their their worlds and and the different forces at play um the the but the the this it also the, i think there's similarly this is also a big point though like it there there's a a bigger crisis in, in the media right now where there's significant declining trust in, in public trust in the media as well as in dem- quote-unquote democratic institutions and and I, I think I think that though that these declines in trust do make sense in a way like if 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 um, democratic institutions don't have the power that we're told they do because they don't um, and and uh, if, if the media is not helping us understand that and understand like why things are the way they are, why things aren't different, um, then those, those decline, the lacking trust makes sense. Um, the, we more broadly across the media, we need to reconnect journalism with its really core social purpose, which is to support democracy and then go move from that perspective. Um, and if you focus on, on that, that core social purpose, of, of journalism to support democracy and then you move from there to look at where what are the current threats to democracy um our book outlines several that would would you know should be new beats for journalists i many journalists uh, you know there, there are journalists who cover the supreme supreme court in the u.s or in, in other other countries um, and, and there should be more regular coverage of, of the, these international investor state disputes and also recognition that um, even a case against Honduras, uh, let's say you don't you're not based in Honduras, but that case against Honduras still could have no uh, future effects on your country because there's also a lot of learning and, and, and uh, a sort of inf- maybe not formal, but a version of precedent setting and, and companies and law firms, they learn from other cases. And so if, if, so if Honduras is being challenged over changing its special economic zone law, then probably every country in the world that has special economic zone, which is the vast majority of countries should care about that case because if they ever wanted to change their policy, they might come up against the same problem that Honduras is coming up against now. Um, so those are big, big uh, that, that's a big answer, but that was a big question. <laughs> yeah, no, very fair. It's absolutely a big question um, and needs some big answers. So I think that uh, does a lot to help us start thinking about it. And really only leaves my final question, which is hopefully not as big as my, la- my previous question. Um, this book that is the result of so much work from the two of you is now available. People can read it. 
Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's on this topic, whether or not it's a book that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm doing more work on, on international aid. And um, I've, I've recently done a couple of um, research projects, some of which have been released, some of which are still forthcoming, um, looking at the international aid system and how it's also been used um, by uh, far right, religious right organizations, um, to raise resources and the, at the same time raise, raise resources from donors that in theory commit to supporting human rights um, at the same time as they engage in anti-human rights activities, um, as well as international aid supporting wars on drugs, undermining public health and rights schools. Um, and and that, that these projects have been very interesting because of seeing how... Um, to some extent, some other anti-democratic actors, including far-right religious right actors, um, uh, ha- have been able to use uh, and benefit from the aid and development system um, in ways that parallel, um, some that sometimes parallel how corporations have been able to use these systems. Um, yeah, so I, I could... And, and then Matt, Matt is doing a lot of work also on... on you know, related to the book, but also more broadly on um, foreign policy and British foreign policy around the world, which is also another area um, of, you know, significant public interest and concern that isn't um, uh, necessarily, isn't really rigorously covered otherwise in the media. Wonderful. And if people are interested in that very cool sounding range of projects, um, where can they find you both? On Twitter, let's say. All right, Twitter it is. Um, anyone who's listening, uh, Claire has obviously shared us a whole bunch of fascinating things from the book, the full title of which, again, is Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy, just out from Bloomsbury. Claire, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me.